Today's episode of The Ringer FC is brought to you by SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the best app for buying and selling tickets to sporting events, concerts, and more. For $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase on any game or sporting event, all you have to do is use promo code RINGERFC, download the SeatGeek app, or go to SeatGeek.com. Welcome to Ringer FC. My name is Chris Ryan. I am joined by Ryan O'Hanlon. What's up? Micah Peters. Too many cassasses in football. And in New York City, Donnie Kwok. Holla. Guys, it is World Cup season! Man, we are excited. We got so much stuff going on over at the Ringer. As you may or may not know, there is a blockbuster story on our site today by Andrew Helms and Matt Pence. The inside story of how the USMNT missed the 2018 World Cup. It's one of my favorite pieces in the history of the Ringer. No, no lie. Uh, it's been a great couple weeks for the Ringer. This is just like an incredible, deeply reported soap opera about how the USMNT missed out on Russia. Ryan worked on it for months. Uh, Andrew and Matt did an incredible job. Everybody who worked behind the scenes on it did an incredible job. If you want to know why we're not in Russia, just read this story. <laughs> Ryan, do you have anything you want to add? Because I know we talked to uh, you talked to Andrew and Matt later on in this episode. Uh, go read the piece. It's the second <laughs> ringer piece in two weeks about a massive failure in sports leadership. <laughs> Don't know what you could possibly refer <laughs> to otherwise. Today, guys, we're going to get into our official World Cup preview process. We're going to be talking about the groups today, and we're basically doing a, a draft of intrigue for the World <laughs> Cup groups. Uh, and we are not talking about any Russian security services. We're talking about uh, all the teams in their different groups for the World Cup for the group stages. Next week, we will be doing uh, a deep dive on players that we're excited to watch. You can check out some of our videos that we've been making, World Cup preview videos. Today, we had a breakout star video and also a video about who you should cheer for since the USMNT is not going to Russia. So please check those out on YouTube. They're also on our Twitter account, everywhere you look for video, but especially YouTube just go to the ringer subscribe on our youtube channel look for a lot more world cup content and when the cup itself starts we will be going every weekday to review that day's games and preview the next day's games we're really excited to be with you throughout the world cup so let's just get right into this this intrigue draft um and what we want to do is basically each one of our members of our panel it's just going to go in order you get to pick the group you are most intrigued by Take them off the board. We'll keep it moving. And why don't we start, Micah, with you? Okay. I want to talk about Group G because... Well, are you picking Group G? Yeah. Well, okay, yes. I'm picking, <laughs> I'm, I'm picking Group G. You already right. fucked it up. Uh, listen, hey, listen. I'm All right. I'm picking Group G. Everybody just relax, okay? Uh, Belgium, Tunisia, England, Panama. Now, it's kind of a top-heavy group, but... I'm just really convinced that Belgium might do the shit, you know, just because they have said every dude since 2010 yeah, said generic Twitter <laughs> I mean, account. I, hey, listen, I, I generic Twitter account over here thinks that Chelsea, like Chelsea. Okay. So I'm from Chelsea, Eden Hazard, Thibaut Courtois, uh, Vincent company, Kevin De Bruyne, you know, actually if, company requires i mean recovers from the groin injury and then also i think that vincent company and, definitely gets like a groupon on mri scan <laughs> he, right? he has to 
Um, and then also Dries Mertens from uh, from Napoli. Right. I'm, I'm very excited about oh, And on top of that, England and Belgium will be playing on the final day of the group to kind of decide who's going to get the more favorable round of 16 pairing. I think that ought to be interesting. Panama also in this group drawing a lot from MLS. So mm-hmm. the, the people might recognize some of the names they see. Yeah. Um, a couple Red Bulls on there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they also have the largest player in the tournament. Uh, Gabriel Torres, so they've got that going for him. Um, I think Panama has the oldest and the most experienced team. They're also by far the worst team. (laughs) By a lot. Is it fair to say you could just swap, like, if the U.S. had beaten Trinidad, this would have been their spot? Uh, the US, you couldn't really do like a like for like. No, like the, that, right? the US would would have been ranked higher in the draw because it's now it's not separated by region anymore. So I think they would have been higher up. Panama oh. fouls a lot more than the US too. <laughs> <laughs> Is Tunisia sneaky good? Fourteenth ranked, fourteenth in the world. Uh, you know, I'm just trying to like. Because Kazri uh, is pretty good from Nice. Um, I'd be curious to see whether or not they can make any noise in this group, but you expect Belgium and England to go through to the knockouts, correct? Yeah, yeah. I think pretty easily. I mean, like, I honestly, with their top score sideline with an injury, uh, Yusuf Mascani, I really don't see it for Tunisia. Okay, let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Has the uh, British tabloids, have they peaked too early by getting by getting excited about Raheem, Raheem Sterling's gun tattoo. I mean, yes, I think that so they tell pe- people about this if they don't know about. So it. basically, uh, Raheem Sterling was photographed at training, you know, like wearing ankle socks, and you could see peeking out of those ankle socks a massive full length calf tattoo of an AK forty seven. Right. And, uh, you know, basically there's a lot of hoopla. Daily Mail, the Daily Mail, the Sun, just being like, you know, making this some great moral, this great moral stumbling or whatever. And everybody else on Twitter was just kind of like, really, it would just be a shame if Jamie Vardy didn't use Raheem Sterling's leg in a goal celebration somehow. (laughs) I mean, like. It's really just over the top. We should say, Raheem Sterling's tattoo is a tribute to his father, who was murdered in gun violence. Exactly. Okay, and second of all... That's a weird tribute, bro. I, it's a weird tribute, be but that you as know, it, may, like, Donnie, it, it was not it like I really like guns. It was it was because he, he wanted to make a statement about how his father passed away. And second of all, like this is kind of a classic England old goal where they can't, like, the media in that country can't resist, like, Talking picking about on a player. Talking about how much his car costs exactly. or where he was spending the night before something or other, if he was out partying after a game, if he's eating a sausage roll and his Bentley, it's like the dumbest. <laughs> In this instance, though, we can agree media overreaction, overreaction, but also stupid tattoo. Sure. Yeah, sure. I mean, like, I mean, not really. really yeah. not I'm that, not going to, we I, can't really put ourselves in you your know, shoes. Like, I really, you, I, I mean, like, it's, I don't know, man, it's not your dad, I, but it's, I'd like I think the only thing that we can actually agree on is that the reaction was very stupid. Yes. Okay, so England's already got their tabloid controversy and that brings us out of uh out of group G, was it group G? Yes. yes. Group, G group G is the first group that we have off the board is the most intriguing. Ryan, what's your most intriguing group? Uh group A. Uh, nice. This is by far the worst group in the World Cup, <laughs> where the best team is uh Uruguay and they're not that good. Yeah. Um they're just kind of uh, sort of low to low mid tier team at this point, um, but I think this this is the group of uh, Louise Mensch, as I put it to Chris uh, <laughs> earlier today. Um, last two tournaments, Luis Suarez uh, purposely blocked a shot with his hand and got a red card against Ghana in twenty ten, and they. Uruguay beat Ghana because of Luis Suarez. Then 
last World Cup, as Micah just said, he bit someone for the third or fourth time uh, in his George professional. Cellini, yeah. yeah, but it was the third or fourth time he'd done it as yeah. a professional soccer player. And now he's in a group with Russia, um, the hosts who, uh, you know, go read about Russia on the internet. There's, <laughs> there's plenty out there. We don't need to say anything. But I think with the Suarez-Russia potential, um, Egypt with Mohamed Salah, I think that he, that's probably the most lopsided one-man team in the history of the Egypt World Cup, is, yeah. I would say, just from a, a talent standpoint of how good Salah is and compared to his teammates. Um, Salah might miss the first game of, of the World Cup mm-hmm. due to this injury that he suffered at the hands of the coward Sergio yeah. Ramos. Well, he, <laughs> as Sergio Ramos said, it was Salah who injured himself yes. in that wow. uh, situation. Haven't we all just yeah. <laughs> knife ten times? Okay, uh, so Salah and Suarez arguably two top, what, eight players in the world? Like, yep. So that, that'll be definitely something to keep an eye on. Do you see the host country advancing? Uh, yeah, I think the none of these teams are that good. The host country bounce, um, Possibly uh, redacted. I'm not uh, not ruling out anything questionable happening behind the scenes either with this. Okay, uh, so that would be Group A as the second group off the board. That leaves it to you, Donnie. Take it yes. away. I'm going with Group D as in Donnie. Uh, <laughs> is it is it because it's the first letter of your name or it is not? I'm okay. going to give you the reasons why, Micah. This is the group, I think, that has the best overall storylines. Yes. Okay, so to remind you guys, the group is Argentina, Croatia, Iceland, Nigeria. I'll go one by one with each each team. So Argentina, obviously, is Lionel Messi. So anybody's going to want to watch what Messi does in the World Cup. That's a given. Croatia is kind of an underachieving sort of mercurial team, but... They have a lot of elite talent and are always fun in tournaments. And plus, great kits. Amazing kits. Amazing kits. Iceland is, of course, the feel-good story of the World Cup. Uh, Smallest nation, debutantes. We saw what they did in the Euros. Um, There'll be a lot of interest in them from casual fans. And then Nigeria. Come on, guys. The kits. And, the, and, and a nice, <laughs> mix, of, guys, a nice mix of veteran players and young players on that Nigeria team. Yeah, I mean, and also obviously people who watch the premiership know of Iwobi and Didi, Victor Moses. There's a lot of familiar players there. But John Obi? Look, yeah, uh, come on, man. John, John, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. John McElobi as well. But when you look at group by group and you look at the matchups, and if you look at group D, it's like every permutation is in, has a story or an interesting feel to it. It's like Argentina versus Iceland is the opener for the group. I mean, that's amazing. That's like Messi versus this tiny upstart nation. Croatia versus Nigeria is like a battle of who amazing kits and and you know like players that players that we all know. No like un unentertaining matchup among these four teams. Also, like the door is a little bit more open to like a surprise top of the group finisher just because Argentina finished Dog, second. There is no oh. door on this one. I yeah. feel like it was it was yeah. I mean, like they uh, Argentina finished second in the last World Cup. Uh, and I mean, like they have Lionel Messi, obviously, but they don't feel like a secure favorite just because yeah. they got in on the last day of qualifying and also lost to Spain 6-1 in March. Like, I mean, Croatia kind of crawled in too, but with Argentina, you're at Sampioli, it's kind of unpredictability and, and how they're going to line up and, and, and you know, how Messi's going to perform pressure on him. I mean, I think every Argentina match is going to have that weight. Argentina is basically like the Warriors if they had Clay and Steph and KD and then Draymond was 34 and played in China. Yep. Uh, and then the rest of the team was Nick Young and JaVale McGee. 
Or if like <laughs> if David West was every other player other than Steph and yes, Clay. Yes. <laughs> um, but you've been getting a little bit. I feel like I've noticed from Ryan a little bit of a an uptick in the temperature of 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 being into Argentina. Well, it's going to be f- so. Their manager Jorge Sampaoli managed Chile, um, one of the most exciting and successful teams in the world, while he was the manager there, um, and then managed Sevilla last year. Sevilla was awesome, I would say, for 75% of the season. A hell of a lot of fun to watch. Um, so he's an extremely accomplished manager, arguably the best manager in the tournament um, if he has the right players. So seeing him try to get the most out of Messi is going to be fascinating, but he loves to play this like insanely attacking style with defenders that aren't defenders. But like we just said... Their midfielders are old as shit. Their defenders are just as old and slower than their midfielders. And he's come out and said that they're going to play like a 2-3-3-2 formation. Um, so it's like, <laughs> with me, it's like... Recipe for success. It's, he's, in a lot of ways, the best manager Messi's had since 2006. Um, but the ceiling with him, I feel like, is higher than any manager in the tournament. And the floor is probably lower um, than it's ever been with Argentina also. And that's saying a lot, considering uh, Diego Maradona was the manager two World Cups ago. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> um, Donnie, who do you see coming out of this group? Because, you know, Croatia... I think everybody was pretty fired up about them in the 2000 and what, six Euros, 2008 Euros, when they played Turkey with, and they had Bilic managing. And that was the beginning of a kind of really exciting young generation of players. This might be the last World Cup that we see those players in anywhere close to their prime. They've kind of been having a, a Lampard Gerard struggle between Rakitic and Modric because they both like to occupy similar deep lying midfield spots, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that those guys that you mentioned and, and that generation realizes that this is the they haven't been out of the group stage since that I guess famous ninety eight team. So it's it's really kind of do or die for them in this tournament. But so. Modric is playing the ten in this tournament apparently. He's also uh, the most hated man in Croatia. Modric is why. <laughs> yeah. So there is this. Um, former executive at Dynamo Zagreb, this guy Zradko Mamic, who's sort of the most powerful person in Croatian soccer. And basically he's accused and hasn't even denied that basically transfers from the club, he agreed with players beforehand and was able to pocket like large portions of the transfers. Oh, man. And Modric was brought in to testify, initially testified that yes, this happened. And then, and so this guy's hated in Croatia, so everyone's against him. And then Modric c- comes back and changes his tes- testimony to say that none of this happened. Um, so essentially, Modric is like enemy number two in Croatia behind the guy that he refused to testify against. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that, that w- Donnie, who do you see coming out of this group? Uh, it's tough to say. I mean, Iceland and Croatia were in the same qualifying group, and Iceland won that group. So, but I, I have a feeling for some reason that the feel good vibes are going to end here. Uh, it's hard to pick against Argentina. I want to say Nigeria as the dark horse or kind of the hipster's favorite. So I'll say Argentina and Nigeria. Okay. that's I, I, I like the Nigeria shout. I would be great to see them make a run here. Uh, my group, and I'm glad you guys let me have this one. This is actually easily my most intriguing group, even of the ones that have been picked, but I'm going to go group H. I'm so excited to watch every single (laughs) game in this group. (laughs) Incredible striking talent in this group. Uh, Robert Lewandowski, obviously, from Bayern. Sadio Mane, me and Ryan's personal uh, icon. And Radamel (laughs) Falcao, who's had a little bit of a bounce back year starting... In France, yeah. yeah, It's his first World Cup. And it's his first World Mm -hmm. Cup. 
Uh, Ryan had mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. He's he's been talking about Poland. He's been talking about Colombia. I gave Colombia like a real kick in the tires over the last couple of days, and I'm now sort of convinced they might win the World Cup. Uh, <laughs> if everything breaks right for them, they have talent everywhere on the field. We were we've been talking about with these international teams uh, in some of our videos you'll see and in the past podcasts that what you'll have like a top heavy team, maybe uh, a great striker, maybe two great strikers, and then by the time you get to the back line, you've got these thirty seven year old dudes who are playing in like mid tier Turkish teams. Yeah, and <laughs> that's then- not the case for Colombia, man. Colombia's got beasts all over the park. Davinson Sanchez and Yeri Mina in defense. Mm-hmm. James, Juan Cuadrado in midfield, and Falcao and Baca in attack. They have a good spine. Donnie, I don't know if David Espina is ready for this, <laughs> for this Russian summer, but I'm really excited for Colombia. And then when I was reading about Colombia, I got super into Poland. I didn't know that Poland was was having such a, a wonderful qualifying. I kind of slept on that. I mean, aren't they ranked in like the top five? Or yeah, something? yeah, they and had eight wins, one draw, one loss in qualifying. And they have obviously uh, Lua is like their like Robert Lewandowski is like their kind of iconic player. But I'm really excited to watch these two younger Napoli players that they have, Peter Zielinski and uh, Arcadius Milik, mm-hmm. um, that you'll see probably getting involved in attack. And I just, so you take that, you take Japan that plays this really nice possession style football and you got Kagawa, Okazaki and Honda, the sort of uh, attacking trio that they have. You're going to see a lot of attacking. There's some, some real brick shit houses on Senegal too, like Kubayi from uh, Napoli. Like they've uh, got Koulibaly, Koulibaly. Yeah. Koulibaly. Yeah. Koulibaly from uh, Sen- like uh, Napoli. So you're going to see some like really good games in Group H. So if you have like a viewing guide and you're like recording games if they're on too early, or if you're just like looking for a group to intently follow, you're going to ask me who's coming out. I think Poland and Colombia, but it's going to be an absolute brawl. I. As people can see in one of our videos, that's Colombia is my dark horse to yeah. win it all. They're like they were. I think they're forty to one. I, I feel like if you're gonna you're gonna lose money on the World Cup, so if you're gonna lose it, you might as well bet it on Colombia. And I, I totally agree with international soccer. It's like like it's just luck a lot of the times. It's like you could have ten good attacking midfielders, but you can't play all of them. And if you just happen to not have it right back in your generation, like what are you gonna do? But Colombia has essentially solid players all over the field and the one thing they're lacking is like a passing central midfielder but James with Bayern this year he's dropped back farther he's not playing as a number 10 with Bayern he's was awesome this year and is able to progress the ball up the field and do the things that those midfielders yeah. um they have an outlet with Quadrado yeah, if they want to so get I, streaky yeah. I think we're gonna see maybe James I don't think we'll see him score as much this World Cup just because of the different role that he's playing I think he'll drop back farther but I think it's gonna make Colombia a more sort of wholesome team yeah absolutely and Donnie do you think that keepers should be a concern for Colombia fans you mean Ospina? Yes. I mean, I think if, if if they're relying on him to, you know, steal games, it it could be a problem. But uh, you know, he performed. He's performed well for. He's he's definitely the type of player that's performed better for a country than club. So you know, I mean, I think Arsenal fans all know that w- one of his main weaknesses is distribution. So uh, it does get frustrating watching him try to kick the ball past the midpoint line. But um, I think he'll be fine. I don't think it's gonna. Be, he's gonna be the 
what's going to submarine their chances. You mentioned all the great strikers, though. I think Japan, for Japan, that could be a worry. Yeah. If they're relying on Okazaki to be, the, you know, like the main yep. goal yep. scorer. Because he's, he's just the one that cleans up Vardy's slip-ups. All right, we come back around to you, Micah. What's your next most intriguing group? I guess at this point we're getting to le less intriguing groups, but there's still some monster teams left on the board. Yeah. Uh, okay, I think I'm going to go with Group B. Okay. Um, <laughs> just because, I mean, like, it'll, it's Spain and Portugal are, are advancing out of this group, and I feel like we can just disagree from there. Or, you disagree? Yeah. Who do you think is advancing out of the group, then? Uh, I think Morocco has a decent chance. Really? Yep. Why? Uh, one, I think we're overrating Portugal. They finished in third in their group in the Euros. You just hate Ronaldo, bro. That's definitely not true. You have a Ronaldo tattoo on your chest <laughs> is, the, is the real issue. The, the it's Daily actually, Mail on, my, is it's writing, actually on my lower back. <laughs> yeah, the Daily Mail is writing articles about Donnie's Ronaldo tattoo. <laughs> um, I, I think we're, we're underrating Morocco. They have... Uh, the interesting thing about their team is that they have got most of their team is not born in Morocco. Um, their players kind of play all throughout Europe. Um, there's this consultancy that we we talked to this guy Omar Chedori for a lot of the things we write on the site. They rate Morocco as the most uh, improved team since the last World Cup. They didn't lose a game in qualifying, and they just have a ton of really fun young talent um, that I think. There's a chance that they can surprise Portugal. I, I don't. Portugal's fine. I, I think we're overrating them because of the Euros. But I guess I just I, I, Pepe I is starting really for Portugal. Checking for Morocco <laughs> because the only person I, I know that plays for them is Manny Mbappé, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you gave know, up it, the PK. It, one thing I say for a group that makes it intriguing is when three countries in it are that close to each other. That kind of geographically, creates an geographically, I think yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, I think yeah. it's. I mean, I think that. I think Portugal is a little bit underrated at this point, coming off of what was not necessarily an inspiring Euro campaign. But uh, I'm excited to watch Bernardo Silva in the Cup. I thought he played well in their last qualifier. Oh, not their last qualifier, their last friendly that they just played um, over the first weekend of June. Mm -hmm. And I think that he could maybe get a little bit more usage if Ronaldo plays his way into importance in this tournament. I don't know if it would be smart for Portugal to have another attacking option rather than cross and or lump it and or give it to Cristiano and let him do complete magic with it. Um, Ryan, what's your next group of intrigue? Uh, Micah stole mine. So let me go with group C. Yes. I, I think hey. all we really need to say about group C is that <laughs> the captains for France, Denmark, and Australia wrote a letter to FIFA to get the captain of Peru unsuspended uh, for testing positive for cocaine, and they succeeded. So Paolo Guerrero, <laughs> who's sort of the best goal scorer, um, other than, I guess, Claudio Pizarro, shout out to him, um, in Peru history is back, and that's, you know, with a team like Peru, where the talent isn't as deep as other countries, getting a guy like that back is a huge deal in a way that it might not be for Germany. Um, France, I think... It's going to be fascinating to see what happens with France because they have so much attacking talent, and yet I think they're going to play. The whole point of having N'Golo Conte is that you can play one other center midfielder, and it can be an attacking player next to him, and I think they're going to end up playing Matuidi and Pogba next to him, which seems like a waste of all their talent. But it's France is always It's going to be fascinating to see how they align their talent. Denmark, Christian Eriksen... We also talk about this in our video. He's going to be the guy for Denmark, scored a ton of goals in qualifying, doesn't have to worry about feeding Harry Kane. Bentner also didn't make the squad, so... Because uh, he's, he's what? Because he sucks. Because he, well, Yeah, I mean, like, that's, that's a simple answer. 
<laughs> I think that's uh, stupid because I think Peru is probably going to get out of the group um, after France. But so you don't think Denmark can get through? I think they definitely. I mean, to say uh, that I don't think someone can get through it to the World Cup, shit can happen. Sure. I, I think Denmark and Peru are going to be fighting for the third spot. Australia, Bert van Marwijk, who was the guy who almost destroyed total football in 2010 is right. coaching Australia. So well, is Tim Cahill on Australia this <laughs> year? Yes. <laughs> yes. He's never going to ever leave. I got a question for you though. Who is Francis Wobble going to come against? Because I mean, like the only way that they don't win the world cup in my eyes is like, if they it's defensively, I mean like they'll have problems at the back. So. I mean, uh, France could lose to Argentina, Brazil, Spain, Germany. I mean like, okay. In the group, I mean, Group, they're gonna. They should walk the group. It's but it's, France is just. There's so much volatility the only, with the, the team. Yeah, the always. only team that can really beat France is France. Yeah, yeah. and Italy, who's not there, so exactly. they'll be fine. That's true. <laughs> uh, keep an eye out for Pioni Sisto on Denmark. Uh, very exciting. Uh, attacking guy. He plays, he can play across the front line, but uh, he's especially good on the wings. He has a incredibly Girardian sense. I know this is the second, it makes Girard. it sound like I've only ever watched Steven Girard play soccer, but <laughs> he can hit really cool Hollywood passes, like cross field passes um, from deep on the wings. So it makes their uh, counters really unpredictable because you never know when a uh, system might like let go a 40 yard pass to like the other streaking winger. Uh, Casper Dolberg also is, if you play FIFA is like a very popular, <laughs> like I copped Casper Dolberg in one La Liga. Uh, he has had a quiet season uh, over at uh, Ajax, but is one of the sort of darlings of European youngster football. So definitely keep an eye on him, but it should be a cool group for sure. Donnie, who's your next group? Okay, so I'm going to choose Group F. Uh, a little bit biased here. Korea is in the group, but it's Germany, Mexico, Sweden, Korea. I can't believe the France group went ahead of this group, to be honest. But um, is there a cocaine letter in this group or no? <laughs> <laughs> France France usually plays boring group games. I have to say, but anyway, in this group, Germany, who Ryan picked to not make it past the group stage, is in it. Um, of course, def the defending champions, America's favorite team. That's Besides the USMNT is in here, Mexico, uh, Sweden, and of course, Korea. So it, I think, you know, it's Germany is obviously going to be the favorites to advance. But I think for, of the remaining three teams, it is going to be very competitive uh, to get that second slot. And, um, you know, overall, I think those three teams are pretty evenly matched. So there, it, there's not really a minnow in this group. I mean, if there is one, you might say it's Korea. But uh, overall, I think it's going to be competitive and yeah, I think as far as entry goes, it's certainly, you know, it, it, what you want from a group is kind of like uh, competitive matches and like a dog fight for the, for the final spot. And I think that's what you're going to get. Definitely keep an eye out for two players on Sweden in this group. Pontus Janssen plays uh, for Leeds. Was that your Swedish name generator? <laughs> no, I, it, that's it's, it's and Lars Johansson. But Pontus Janssen does sound like uh, the dude who just oh, like Abu Dhabi's leg was broken by Pontus Janssen. It sounds like somebody who gets banned for three games for a tackle. And also Emil Forsberg, who if you watch Bundesliga, if you watch RB Leipzig, 
is a really exciting attacking player. Ryan, right, do you he's there number 10. Anything about Forsberg people should know? Uh, he had eight goals and 19 assists last season and had two goals and two assists this season. So I think... Because he's saving it for the World Cup. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, that's kind of... It's an interesting story, though, especially without Zlatan being involved. He's the go-to guy with Sweden. So what happened be, to him this season? Um, I think he's been hurt a bunch. He only... He played 1,300 minutes, played 2,300 minutes the year before. Um that, that's not enough to account for that big drop-off. But sure. I think he was hurt, and Leipzig just wasn't as good this year. Um, you guys, Mexico has been knocked out of the last at, in the last 16, the last six World Cups. Do you guys see that changing? It, de- it depends on Chucky. Can we talk it's about Chucky? It's all about Chucky, baby. <laughs> One of the most hotly tipped players coming into the World Cup is Hector Lozano from Mexico. Uh, you guys want to talk about him at all? Uh, he's... He might be the best player in CONCACAF. Like, I don't wow. think that would... I mean, you could argue... Better than Pulisic? You could argue. Um, if uh, Leon Bailey decides to play for Jamaica, then then it's him. But <laughs> um, not to get too in the weeds. He was the best player on PSV this year who won the Eredivisie. Um, he's kind of an interesting winger because most wingers nowadays play on the wrong side of the field and cut in. He's a righty who plays on the right side, and he's super dangerous, scores a lot and creates a lot, but he gets on the end of balls behind the defense, which is an interesting kind of approach for a winger. And he's also an incredible crosser of the ball and crossing is kind of a dying art um, because it's just super inefficient. But he's 22, probably going to move to a bigger club this summer. And he's the kind of, you know, Mexico has a huge fan base, especially in America. He's the kind of, he's a very good choice for, guy that becomes a star after Can I give one quick shout too for a Korean guy? Uh, His name is Lee Sung-woo. Uh, he was kind of a surprise inclusion in in the final squad. I think he's 21 or 22, but famously, he was groomed at La Masia uh, yeah. with, with Barcelona and played for their youth teams. Uh, eventually, it didn't quite work out for him to go to the senior team, and he was loaned out, I believe, to a Serie B team called Hellas Verona. So his his professional career has sputtered a little bit, but he was included in the last round of friendlies and eventually made the final cut, and he's... He definitely stands out on the pitch because Korea doesn't have players that are quite as dynamic as he is. He's a winger. Uh, he's very, you know, he's schooled in the Barcelona way. So he's good in possession. He's technically sound. He's quick. He's electric. And he's going to, I don't know if he's going to start, but people are already kind of salivating at this sunny Lee Sung-woo combination that could happen um, in Russia. Um, for my most intriguing group, last least intriguing group, I would like to offer an apology. We have, Brazil is in the least intriguing group. That's exactly yes. what I'm apologizing yes. for. <laughs> we have big up to Colombia. We have talked about Raheem Sterling's tattoos. We have talked about Emil Forsberg. We have <laughs> talked about the Japan attacking trident of 30-year-old dudes who we, never really popped off. We never actually talked about Leroy Sané's box braids or no, him getting or dropped the fact from that he's not on the German team. team. Yeah. Uh, uh, we've made videos, we've written articles, we have not talked enough about Brazil. I usually hate it when people are like, how could you guys not talk about? But we did, I do think that we are just taking for granted that the number two ranked team in the world with Neymar is just going to have the tournament that they're going to have, and we can't really over-speculate about it, but they are probably the most talented team in the world. Uh, With some competition from France, but not a lot when you think about what they are front to back with Allison and goal to Neymar at striker. And you've also got like so much competition for places here. 
I, I just I think that they are such a rich, richly talented team. They probably have the best midfield in the world, right? They do. And they Casemiro, Philip Coutinho, Paulinho, Fernandinho, Fred, and Renato Augusto. Like that's ridiculous. They Can, also have all of the best wingbacks in the world. Yes, Marcelo, Danilo. Yeah, I mean this is they are stocked everywhere, and not least of which uh, in the front where they have Douglas Costa, Gabriel Jesus, Neymar, William, Roberto Firmino, and Tyson. Give me a reason why the Brazil's not going to win the World Cup. I'm, I'm not going to give you a reason because they are going to win. Um, <laughs> we're like we're scarred from the seven one loss, and like ma- the majority of these players didn't play in that game. Yeah, um, that's true. Like w- rather than just taking the whole account of history and Brazil's recent World Cup performances, um, I mean the Brazil's odds are super high, but I think the general kind of soccer Twitter world is prove is, it. Yeah, isn't right. isn't high on Brazil. Brazil's uh, I think they're going to win it. I think they should be the favorite. The, their starting lineup against Croatia. This is these are the teams the players played for in their friendly over the weekend: Roma, Real Madrid, PSG, Inter Milan, Man City, Real Madrid, Manchester City, Barcelona, Chelsea, Barcelona, Manchester City. They brought off a man, brought a Man U, two PSG, and a Liverpool player off the bench. <laughs> and their backup keeper plays for Manchester City. Yeah. Like it's the, Wait, who was a Liverpool who was a Liverpool player? Uh Bobby Firmino, yeah, baby. Bobby Firms. Uh-oh. Um like that is just in international soccer we can overthink things. That talent, like you can have your quibbles with who those players are, but no other team has that. And I think for some, the 7-1 is just hanging over everyone's head. Yeah, and I think that you know, this is a really big tournament for Neymar, who essentially uh, you know, you, we could argue all day. He left Barcelona to go to PSG, um, and then recovered on PS4. Recovered on PS4 <laughs> from yeah. PSG to PS4. He got he got injured. <laughs> he he was not with the team for the majority of the 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 second half of the season. They when they went out of the Champions League, they kind of sputtered through the end of uh, Liga uh, season. There's been talk about him moving to Real Madrid, but when you watch Neymar with Brazil, he seems to be playing with his real team. I mean, he scored an insane goal against Croatia yeah. over the weekend. Uh, he looks fine. <laughs> if you are going to put a little bit of money here, or a little bit of money there on Colombia, on Poland, or whoever, you're going to get cute. Hedge, get, hedge with Brazil. That's yeah. what I would say. Um, all right, so those are our group rankings. Ryan's going to talk to Andrew Helms and Matt Pence now about their incredible USMNT piece. We'll be back next week to talk about players to watch in the World Cup. We'll do a draft of the most intriguing players in the World Cup. We'll see how long that one goes. Maybe we'll be here for four or five hours. (laughs) When we start the World Cup, you'll have us with you every single weekday talking to you about the games of the day. Am I forgetting anything? Uh, we're just going to have a bunch of preview stuff up every day in the lead up to the World Cup and a bunch of other written stuff throughout the tournament as yeah, well. Yeah, so we'll be, we'll be with you for the next month. Get used to us. Uh, for Ryan, Micah, and Donnie, my name's Chris. Talk to you later. We're going to get to Ryan O'Hanlon's interview with Andrew and Matt about their blockbuster story, but first, a word from our sponsor. Today's episode of The Ringer FC is brought to you by Proper Cloth. Finding a dress shirt that fits is nearly impossible. Something is always off, be it the collar or the sleeves. Thankfully, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier with Proper Cloth. At propercloth.com, you can easily create a custom shirt size in seconds by answering 10 simple questions. Choose from over 20 collar styles, 10 cuff styles, and 500 fabric styles from classic to business to casual to completely customize your shirt and get the style that you want. The team at Proper Cloth works with the best fabric producers from around the world and only buy fabrics that meet their high-quality expectations. Each one of their shirts goes through extensive quality control testing, so you're getting the absolute best quality 
and craftsmanship. Best of all, Proper Cloth guarantees a perfect fit, meaning that if somehow your shirt doesn't fit perfectly, they will remake it for free. The whole process is risk-free. This is the future of shirts. These shirts are made completely custom for you, starting at just $80. Stop wearing shirts that don't fit. Start looking your best with a custom-fitted shirt. Go to propercloth.com FC today. Enter gift code FC to get $20 off your first shirt. Today's episode of The Ringer FC is brought to you by Hotel Tonight. If you're the type that's always looking for bigger and better deals, you've got to get the Hotel Tonight app. Hotel Tonight partners with awesome hotels to help them sell their unsold rooms, which means you get amazing deals. Their name is Hotel Tonight, but you can actually book in advance, book next week tonight or book next month tonight. All it takes is 10 seconds, just three taps and a swipe. No long, endless lists of a zillion hotel choices. Hotel Tonight only shows you the best deals at the best hotels. It's perfect whether you're a planner or you like to leave things to the very last minute. And with Hotel Tonight's HT Perks program, the more you book, the better deals get, unlike other loyalty programs where you're trapped into staying at boring chain hotels. I've been using Hotel Tonight for about a year and a half now. I've used it to go to Lake Tahoe, to do staycations in Los Angeles. And it's just a really excellent way to be spontaneous, but still find a really great place to stay. I can't recommend it more highly. It's, you know, if you want to do a staycation, it's right there. If you want to try and pick a spot in a city that you've always been meaning to visit, it's the perfect app. So start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels and download the Hotel Tonight app now. Hey guys, we're back. I'm about to talk to Andrew Helms and Matt Pence about their blockbuster piece about how the USMNT failed to make the 2018 World Cup for the first time in 32 years. So yesterday at The Ringer, we kicked off our World Cup coverage with a 10,000-word piece, deeply reported TikTok of the past seven years for a team that didn't make the World Cup. The piece is titled Own Goal, the inside story of how the USMNT missed the 2018 World Cup. It was written by Andrew Helms and Matt Pence and edited by yours truly. And I've got Matt and Andrew on the line right now. I'm sure they're sick of hearing my voice and getting emails from me. But what's up, guys? Hey, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing okay. I just want to score goals and go fishing. That's kind of how I feel right now. (laughs) Dempsey apparently laughed at that today, by the way. That's good um, to hear. finally been told about it by some Sounders PR guys. <laughs> I was really happy we were able to uh, shore up that quote because um, it belonged in the piece. So the first question I want to ask is, you know, so the U.S. was officially eliminated from the World Cup something like nine months ago. On our website, we ran multiple postmortems. We did an hour-long podcast where we kind of just like stared into the abyss and tried to make sense of things. I wrote one of the postmortems that I thought was sort of a, a you know, 10,000 feet look at things. So when did you guys realize that there needed to be a reported step-by-step look at the past seven years, not just, you know, the past year or the final game that eliminated the U.S.? I think uh, this is Andrew. Um, for me, it's actually something I've been wanting to do for a while because I always thought the Klinsman years were just such a good narrative to begin with. You kind of had this guy who came in to uh, promising to, you know, reform American soccer, you know, hope change. We're going to, we're going to be playing with the world's best. And then five and a half years later, um, it hadn't happened. And, and he got fired pretty unceremoniously after the team more or less gave up on him in, in a world cup qualifier. And so for a while I'd had this, this idea of doing a really big investigation of kind of what happened in those years. 
But then when the U.S. failed to make the World Cup, it finally seemed like there, there might be a chance to do it. And I woke up kind of hungover the, the morning after Trinidad and called Matt and kind of said, you know, I think, I think there's something here if we start kicking over rocks and, and looking under corners that other folks haven't looked at. So that was really the, the start of the piece. And then for October, November, December, Matt and I just tried to contact every source we had in American soccer and, and figure out kind of what we thought the arc of the narrative would be. And, and so that reporting kind of, uh, in those first few months eventually turned into the, the piece that went up, uh, today. And it did snowball for sure. It show, it snowballed in the, it really did just come out of, a an informal conversation that me and Andrew had had the day after the game when like everybody else, you're just trying to, you're a little bit in shock and you're just kind of trying to process what had happened and the implications and all that kind of stuff in it really just kept coming back to the question of how did all of this happen? Um, and then just kind of decided that if anyone was going to tell it, it might as well be the two freelancers with a lot of time on their hands. Uh, and it just kind of grew from there. <laughs> yeah. I I'm grateful that it was two freelancers that, uh, decided to write it. Um, because that's how it ended up in the ringer. So with, with a story like this, I think, you know, with any reported story, uh, the reporting is going to guide you to places that you didn't think it would take you. But I think when you start something like this, you generally kind of have an idea of where you think the story is going to go and what it's going to reveal. What were the biggest sort of differences from what you guys came in when you started making calls and what you were expecting to hear and what you actually heard? Yeah, I can start. I mean, I think the thing that surprised me a little bit most was was both you know, I kind of knew the certain to to some extent that that there were some players who hadn't been happy under under Clemson, but just how bad it got and how that tenure really uh, drove at the core of the U.S. locker room um, really was was surprising to me. And you know, I think the thing that sums it up most was was the quote that we we heard when Michael Bradley had this conversation with with Clint Dempsey about whether or not you know should Jurgen continue to be the coach and it had gotten so bad that Clint basically, you know, had to just throw his hands up and say, you know, Michael, I wouldn't have done this to your father. I just want to score goals and go fishing. I don't want to be involved in team politics, but more than anything, it was a sign of just how fraught it was inside the team that players were even thinking about, you know, talking about the possibility of maybe the, uh, the coach needed to, the coach needed to go. So for me, that was the real big, the big shocker, just the depth of player dissatisfaction under Klinsman, and then kind of how that carried forward into the into the arena years, with the Jeff Cameron being the notable example of a player who just couldn't see eye to eye with arena and the staff. It's kind of building off that for me, and it's similar, but I guess my biggest conception that was really challenged by all of these conversations were that I expected there to be a little bit more division in the group between guys who really wished Klinsman hadn't gone and the guys that were happy, but it really did seem like there was something close to a consensus that really did take a deep breath whenever Jurgen was gone. And that's not to say that there weren't a couple whole ass and some people that were upset about that and some people that were grateful that he had given them their opportunity. But to me, that was a surprising thing. And that's certainly not to let arena off the hook with some of the stuff that happened later on, but I was a little bit surprised that there wasn't this concrete division between pro Klinsman guys and everything else that came after. Yeah, it really, 
the story really um, paints a picture as of American soccer being united <laughs> around uh, these sort of, I don't know if villain is the right word for Klinsman, but everyone can kind of united around him in their interests. But sort of one of the, the key points of the story is that, you know, as you alluded to, Andrew, they interviewed Jurgen Klinsmann behind Bob, Brad- Bob Bradley's back, eventually decided not to bring Klinsmann in because of contract demands. Then they eventually interview him again behind Bob Bradley's back, and then they hire him and get rid of Bob Bradley after the 2011 Gold Cup. And then it seems like there was just, I guess because the U.S. soccer had invested so much into Klinsman, they just, for various reasons, one of which we can talk about, I, like you guys to talk about Sunil Gulati, they just weren't able to bring their self to make the same decision with Klinsman. And it's the sort of parallelism of those two things was a really poignant part of the story for me. Yeah, I mean, I think I think Sunil Galati as a character is is a really fascinating guy because, you know, on the one hand, has he done a tremendous amount to grow American soccer? Yeah, you know, he he's been there since the 1980s. You know, driving the bus uh, to U.S. Men's National Team practice, and you know the the stories of him having to go to Kmart and buy soccer balls when when the team was you know barely barely even a team, and there was not nothing really you could call American soccer. Um, and so to have been there all along the way, and then finally to become president, you know, you have this massive ambition to really be the to be the guy in charge who took American soccer from you know potential to power. And I think in a lot of ways he invested a ton of his um, personal capital in Jurgen being the guy guy to do it. And it's it's one of the reasons why he was very reticent to give up on Jurgen, even as he was hearing from from players from uh, confidence he talked to from people inside U.S. soccer that it just wasn't it wasn't working out, and I think the the division over Jurgen to this day, you know, some of the tweets we're getting from people saying you're too hard on Jurgen, kind of really speak to the fact that that Jurgen did have this amazing vision that a lot of people bought into, not just Sunil, but everyone around American soccer really wanted wanted this thing to come true, and and it was a hard reality to figure out that maybe even though what he said was right and what he was preaching was was good. He just didn't have the leadership and the management skills to kind of turn his vision into reality. Sunil is almost sort of the, the Shakespearean character. It seems like in this sort of overall arc, this guy who invested so much in his role in U.S. soccer in general and sort of let it out of the dark ages to some degree. But then he just was so invested in this vision and to a lot of degrees, he just was blinded by this vision that he had been sold and waited too long to pull the plug. So I think that he's probably the most complex character of this whole narrative when you kind of dig into all of it. Well, especially another one of the sort of revelations, I guess, is that Sunil Glotti essentially had, you know, autonomous power to decide who the next national team manager is. And, you know, Sunil Gulati is president of the U.S. Soccer Federation. He's not the, like, general manager of the men's national team. And I think everything you guys are saying, I think, to me, it felt like as we worked on this story that, you know, because of that, whoever Gulati hired, um, he was sort of staking his reputation to. Um, Because maybe if it was sort of a more kind of um, collaborative process and there was different structures in place for many voices to be involved for the U.S. Na- manager to get 
um, selected, it would be easier for the Federation to separate itself from, from that person. But when it's the president is the one who put his ass out there, basically, um, you can understand why, one, you understand why that's extremely problematic for one person to have that much power, but you can also understand why they'd be so reticent to give up, you know? Yeah, that was one of the crazy things in the reporting when I was talking to Mike Edwards, who was the vice president of U.S. soccer for most of this period. And I was kept trying to ask him, you know, what was it like talking to Sunil about some of these decisions? And, you know, he's like, well, I wasn't really in the room for them. Um, and it just speaks to the reality that that the, there was this very um, closed circle of, of folks who got to make decisions inside U.S. soccer. Um, and in some ways, I think the, the, the great tragedy of Klinsman is that for the first time that U.S. soccer really went outside and tried to bring in an outsider to kind of shake things up, they happened to bring in the person who, whose methods were so divisive that, you know, what the, one of the things that I thought was super interesting in the story was hearing from people talking to Sunil when they were thinking about firing Jurgen. And the only choice that they really seriously considered was Bruce Arena, the former national team coach. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that they, that they went from the ultimate outsider to the ultimate insider. And there wasn't any kind of recognition that maybe, maybe the problem wasn't that they got an outsider. Maybe the problem was that they got an outsider who, who wasn't uh, what they thought he was. Yeah. And the, the sort of, underlying sort of story is that the locker room is completely divided and it it speaks to the fact that the locker room, you know, we're in the sort of age of analytics and numbers, um, rightfully so, but this story speaks to how important locker room dynamics are. And I think what you're saying is that the locker room was super divided basically when Klinsman was manager. And then rather than sort of trying to find a middle ground, basically, with the manager that they brought in. They bring in a guy on the exact opposite pole, and then it kind of, if anything, almost increased the fissures within the locker room, in a way. Is, would you guys say that's fair to say? Yeah, and I think that the locker room dynamic thing is super interesting, because we sort of allude to it in the story. We don't get too deep into it, but sort of a contrast with the 2009 Confederations Cup theme under Bradley, where you had a lot of guys that it come up through the youth system together and have played together from the time that they were young and really developed this mentality that allowed them to upset Spain. It was unquestionably the best team in the world then. It's probably still the most impressive result the U.S. has had in at least sort of the modern era here as a standalone result and make it all the way to that Confederations Cup final. And you talk to a lot of those guys and they felt like they were on the brink of something. Um, But instead, it was just sort of this false peak in a lot of ways because then two years later Bob is gone and you get in and that's sort of where our narrative starts um but those two teams I feel like if you look at the talent on both and the results that they were able to get or not get really speaks to how important a lot of that chemistry can be and I think one of the other one of the other things that I thought was interesting in in our reporting was learning about how when arena comes in you know, a guy like Jeff Cameron, who's playing week in and week out in the Premier League, whose last national team coach has been Jurgen Klinsmann, a World Cup winner. You know, whether or not you, you, you respect Klinsmann as a manager, you have to respect his record as a player and as a competitor. And so you're, you're Jeff Cameron and you're a starter in the Premier League, and now your assistant coaches are, are a few guys who've only worked in MLS. And according to people who were kind of texting with Cameron at the time, 
he was upset and he thought, you know, why should I have to listen to a bunch of guys who've never made it to a World Cup or have never played in the Premier League like I am week in, week out? And you can see that 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 it's going to be a really heavy lift for whoever takes over this team moving forward, that you have to kind of balance all of these different factions and divisions that exist inside inside the team and finding one person who has the both the resume to be uh, you know acceptable to some of the European based players, but also can understand the maybe sensitivities of some of the domestic based ones. It's, it's a big job, and uh, it didn't seem like either Arena nor Clinton were necessarily uh, perfectly successful at, at getting the most out of this player pool. Yeah, and I think to wrap up, I think the the striking thing that has hit me today. Um, we're recording this on Tuesday, so the piece has been up for a couple hours, is that a lot of the people are probably 80 to 90% of the people, characters in the story are pretty much at the end of their involvement with the U.S. national team or just not involved, not going to be involved at all. Um, and yet we end the story by saying that this was a huge opportunity for change and U.S. soccer's election this past winter elected um, basically one of Sunil Gulati's right-hand men. Um, so, are we going to be are we going to be writing uh, another version of this piece <laughs> four years from now? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that if anything, it just this whole experience and writing about how many things went wrong and how many internal dynamics were so flawed. It also speaks a little bit to how easy it kind of is to qualify at a CONCACAF if you're the men's basketball team, because it's like the U.S. just has so many more resources, and they can screw up so many things and still be one Clint Dempsey shot off the post from making it to Russia and papering over all of these things. So I don't necessarily think uh, that we are heading for another iceberg, another disaster quite like this one is. But the lack of reckoning, I think, will hold back the ultimate ceiling. And I think that this is an opportunity to put the U.S. on a new course to really take a hard look and see where we might be able to take a meaningful step toward becoming an international power. And instead, because everything is staying so entrenched, I don't know that you're going to see that drastic growth that this country still really does have when you look at the pure potential. What about yeah, you, I think I think we we alluded to this at the end. I think it'll be really interesting to see who U.S. soccer ends up hiring as the men's national team coach. But I think it'll say a lot about what those in power think went wrong. Um, whether or not they go for you know a big name international coach, whether or not they go for uh, an up and coming MLS coach, uh, it, whoever they do decide to hire, I think will say a tremendous amount about about what they think went wrong. And, and my hope is that they, they bring in someone who kind of can do, can do the two things that, that the national team coach needs to do, which is on the one hand, you know, get the most out of your best 23 players on any given day. Well, at the same time thinking long-term, you know, and, and unfortunately we, we just went between two coaches who kind of uh, were each one more inclined one towards the other. Um, and so it'll be great if, you know, there's a coach who's going to come in and say, look, I want to, I want to develop all the next politics, but I also know that you know, in some ways, as we saw when you watch the, you know, the young kids playing recently uh, last weekend against Ireland, maybe some of these 20-year-olds, even though they're really promising, aren't quite ready yet for for first-team stuff. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see who who takes that job. Yeah, it'll be fascinating. Um, so if you haven't, you guys haven't read the piece, um, go check it out. I 
am obviously extremely biased, as are the two guys on the phone with me right now, but I can't recommend it enough. Um, it's To me, it's the definitive piece on basically everything that's happened in U.S. soccer over the past seven years. Um, so thanks for joining me, guys, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Thanks to Matt and Andrew. Again, if you haven't read the piece, go check it out. It's called Own Goal, How the USMNT Missed the 2018 World Cup. That's the start of our World Cup coverage on The Ringer. We're going to have preview pieces up through the lead of the tournament. We're recording another podcast next week where we're going to rank our favorite players in the tournament. It'll probably be 16 hours long if or around that. Um, we'll be recording podcasts every weekday during the World Cup, 20, 25 minutes or so of recapping that day's games, previewing the next ga- next day's games. And we've also got a set of videos coming out where we address a bunch of sort of key questions before the World Cup starts of, with me, Chris, Donnie, and Micah. So you're going to have a shitload from us over the next couple weeks, so get used to it. For Chris, Donnie, and Micah, um, I'm Ryan. We'll talk to you soon. Today's episode of The Ringer FC is brought to you by Proper Cloth. Having trouble finding shirts that fit? At propercloth.com, ordering custom shirts has never been easier. Create your custom shirt size by answering 10 easy questions. Shirts start at $80 and are delivered in just two weeks. Perfect fit is guaranteed. If a shirt doesn't fit, they will remake it for free. The whole process is risk-free. For premium quality, perfect fitting shirts, visit propercloth.com FC and use gift code FC to get $20 off your first custom shirt today.